I want you to know that I am aware there are Sundays when the, a lot of Sundays, when the music and the worship and everything that happens before I get up are just so wonderful that I'm thinking, don't mess it up, Wade. And you're probably thinking, don't mess it up, Wade. Uh, If you are with us today, if this is the first time or the first time in a while, our theme for the year is Jesus 365. We have been going back to the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the example of Jesus. Uh, We started with Luke's gospel, and now we are in the I am sayings in John's gospel. And if you would like to join us, whether here or distance, uh, after this, we'll be looking at some of the parables. And then in the fall, we are going to wrestle with the Sermon on the Mount, and that will take us all the way back to Advent again, the last Sunday of November to the end of the year. We all have those days that just stand out clearly in our memories. For Stuart Fuhlendorf, it's the day the limo picked up the Isilon Systems corporate team in New York City and they went to Manhattan, went to the trading floor of Morgan Stanley. He was still a little hungover from the party the night before, and there they gathered as a team. Their stock was going public, and they were going to watch it rise. And when the trading opened at $13 per share, it did start rising. And by the time it ended, it had more than doubled in value. It was a roaring success, and he was now a millionaire on paper but something wasn't right. While all of the executives around him felt elated, he was overwhelmed, he said, with a sense of melancholy and dissatisfaction. All his colleagues, optimistic, they just sharing in their triumph and something just wasn't right for him. So he backs up a week in his story where a week before he had some kind of a faith encounter with Christ while the team was in London. On that particular day, they had a series of nine meetings. And when the meetings were over, they went to a restaurant to enjoy a wonderful dinner together. And then as they're walking on the streets, they go by this office building that could have at one time been an apartment complex and an investment banker stopped them and pointed out. And he said, that, that's where Karl Marx lived. That's where he was living while he worked on his book, Das Kapital. Someone in the group said, Lucky for us, Karl Marx wasn't right, or we wouldn't be here. Everybody laughed. Another member said, well, he did get one thing right, that religion is an opiate for the masses. It's nothing but a support for people's insecurities, a crutch. Then someone else on the team said, If it wasn't for religion, most of the wars in the world would have never taken place. Think of all the lives that would have been saved. If it wasn't for religion, this world would be a much better place. Makes sense, he mumbled. And they continued their conversation in the limousine back to the hotel. He went to his room, clear-headed more clear-headed than he had been in a long time. And he looked down at the wet bar and he thought, well, maybe I'll have a drink or two more before I go to sleep. Then he decided not to. 
sat down in a big oak chair covered with soft upholstery. Something was just stirring inside of him. He couldn't get past that comment about religion. On the one hand, he was amused by it. On the other hand, it seemed so simple and shallow. In his mind, he wanted to say yes, but in his heart, he wanted to say no. And then there's this one question. What would the world be like without Jesus? He wrestled with it. Couldn't shake it. Sure, he thought. The world's a broken place. It's a depraved place where wars and violence are common. Sure, there's suffering and endless heartache. But what would the world be like without Jesus? Our focal text for this morning is from John chapter 8. It's the second of the I am sayings. And so there are a series of I am sayings in, in John's gospel, all of them going back. And when you see them, you should go back to the story of Moses standing before the burning bush, the covenant name of God revealed, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. And, and sometimes there's no predicate nominative. There's no object. It's just before Abraham was, I am. And they know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know the claim he's made and the religious leaders are very angry and upset. But we're looking at those that have a predicate nominative, I am the bread of life. And today, this from John chapter 8, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And it sounds like a great text to preach from. And then you keep reading, and he never says anything else about light again. As a matter of fact, it moves into a really interesting conversation. It's a bit frustrating. What happened to all of the light stuff? But before we look at the rest of the text, I want to jump to the very end of this story. If you go down a couple of more paragraphs, John ends with these words. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. And just let that soak in a little bit. Jesus performs no miracles here. No signs. No display of power. It's just Jesus teaching. It's, it's the words of Jesus. There's a crowd that's gathered. They listen and believe. There's something that happens here that changes their lives. May it happen today to us as well. Let's go back a little bit. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll have to, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I'm one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father, they asked. Jesus answered, 
since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. This is the word of God for the people of God. All of this talk, well, one verse about the light of the world and darkness, and then it devolves into this argument with the Pharisees about, wait a minute, who is your father? Who are you really? And it seems like the story at first takes a detour away from the theme that John has given us, reporting to us what Jesus is saying to the crowd. Why all this conflict? Why all this talk? At least seven times in this paragraph and the one that comes after, at least seven times Jesus makes this connection about who the father is. And well, What if it isn't a detour? What if it isn't a detour from this statement, I am the light of the world? What if John wants us to be clear about the way that Jesus is the light of the world? It's because he is one with the Father. What if Jesus wants us to to be very clear, and John in recording this, giving us this story, passing this on to the believers who come, what if they want us to be very clear You cannot understand the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus without understanding a bigger picture of who God is. The language that we now use when we talk about the Trinity. Underlying this debate is this ancient Semitic principle that the child will be like the father. And Jesus draws on this well-known understanding, this well-known principle, and now drives this picture home about himself. Well, let's back up one more time. And if we back up before this chapter in chapter 8, we'll see the larger picture of where this is taking place and what's happening. And that is, it's called, well, it goes by middle, middle, many names, the Feast of Tabern- Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, uh, Sukkot. Uh, it's this week-long celebration of the 40-year journey of the people of Israel coming to the Promised Land. It's one of the three big pilgrimage festivals that we find in the Old Testament a week long five days after the day of atonement and the people build even to this day temporary shelters where they'll go outside and eat their meals where they're reminded what happened to their ancestors they're reminded about the days they were on the road having to trust God for their food having to trust God for the pillar of fire by night that guided them having to trust God for everything Jesus is such a great communicator He takes advantage of where they are, takes advantage of what's happening around them, takes advantage of what's happening to the people in the context of where they are and what they are experiencing at that moment. If you'll let me be a history teacher for just a moment, I'll go back to a collection of writings. It's called the Mishnah. So we have this collection for for decades, decades and decades. We have the the, the oral interpretation of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the rabbis, this oral tradi- tradition of interpreting it and applying it, and it's finally collected and collated into this writing, and, and it's called the Mishnah. And there we have a description of this Feast of Tabernacles. Let me read part of that to you. At the close of the first festival day of the feast, they went down to the court of women of the temple. There were golden... St- 
golden candlesticks there with four golden bowls on the top of them. So imagine these, these big candlesticks. I'll tell you how large in just a moment. And, and at the top of the candlesticks, these, these big bowls that will contain the oil that will be lit. These four golden bowls on the top of them and four ladders that go up to each candlesticks and four young men of the priestly stock and in their hands jars of oil holding 120 logs. We don't use that measurement anymore. That's about 17 gallons. So they're going to climb up these ladders and pour about 17 gallons of oil into each one of these bowls on top of these candlesticks that, by the way, are, they're, told they're 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet. These are big, big candlesticks. Big candlesticks. You don't get these at Hobby Lobby. And, and, and they're filled with this oil. And the story gets better. They made wicks from the worn out drawers and girdles of the priests. Because you can't go to Hobby Lobby and there's no Amazon. You're gonna think about that when you go to sleep tonight. Yeah. They made wicks from the worn out drawers and girdles of the priests and with them they set the candlesticks alight and there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Beit HaShoeva. Um, these candlesticks are so large. And by the way, the descriptions of other people carrying these torches and dancing and so bright that every home in Jerusalem is reflecting the light of these candlesticks. This festival, this celebration, this memory of God's care and God's provision and God's guidance. And Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. You follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness ever, ever again. So what does that mean? Hmm? What does it mean? Well, I think it does mean this, that the light illumines all of creation that Jesus being the light of the world means that there's no other light in the world there's no substitute for this light it doesn't matter how large the candlestick is it doesn't matter how powerful the lighting if there's going to be a light for the world it's going to be Jesus it's Jesus or it's darkness it's what we're celebrating today it's what we sang about today it's it's what we're offering today. It means that the world, our world, the world in which you live is the place where Jesus is offering a new way of living. It's the place where Jesus is offering this new light. It means it's your school and your work and your neighborhood and all the world and everyone in it that you're going to encounter today needs this light. It means that the world was made for this light. Is it really a foreign light? It's the light of the owner of this world. And by this light, you see everything differently. The mountains and the valleys and the oceans and the rivers and the good days and the bad days. 
It becomes the antidote to greed that hurts others and fear that leads to racism, the need for vengeance instead of justice. It's the remedy for anxiety. It's the light of the world, the world you and I get to enjoy. world we're in I think there's another way of looking at this when I'm in that light it illumines other people around me and I just see it differently once I'm in the light it got this way of spilling out and 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 those other people they may not be in the light but I have a different way of seeing them and and what they're doing. I'm thinking about Acts chapter 16. This week I've been thinking about the Apostle Paul and Silas and their preaching. It's a long story of how God gets them there. It's not where they want to go. It's not where they intended to go. They have a clear pattern where they're going and the Holy Spirit goes, you can't go there and preach, no. And they go, well then we'll go here. And the Holy Spirit goes, no, you can't go there either. And they finally figure it out and they end up in Macedonia and they end up in Philippi and they end up in jail wait a minute I thought that's where God called them I thought if you're in God's will everything went great Uh, you know no no they are exactly where the Holy Spirit has led them to go and they are preaching the good news and there they are in prison with their feet in the stocks and Luke tells us it's midnight and they're singing singing hymns to God and there's an earthquake and all the prisoners have the ability to go free and the guard who's there realizes what has happened and draws his sword and is about to take his life because he's in the darkness can't see he's in the darkness he he can't see the possibility of God being in this event He can't see the possibility. Maybe that's where we would have been. Maybe if we end up in prison because we're doing God's will, we couldn't see the possibility either. But for some reason, Paul has enough light in his life to see exactly what's happening. And he calls out to the jailer, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. There's no, don't hurt yourself. What must I do, he said. The jailer, what, what, what do I have to do? What do I need to do to be saved? How, how do I get out of this mess? How... How has my life changed? How do I walk in the light? A few weeks ago, one of our members told me about having a meal with her granddaughter. I believe her granddaughter's in the first grade. And they sit down, just the two of them to eat. And her granddaughter says, let's talk about Russia. And she said, how do you know about Russia? And she said, I listen. And this is what the first grader said. I think Putin needs Jesus. Hmm? Walking in the light. Has that been your prayer? Got enough faith for that one? Been praying for that one? There's something about walking in the light and once you get to enjoy it and bask in it and you begin to see all of creation differently, even the people around you look a bit different. You know, it's, 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 you understand the problems. 
the anger, the pain, the hurt, the hurt done to them, the hurt they've done to others. You, you don't respond to it the same way. There, there's something about the way Jesus responded with grace that suddenly ends up being the kind of grace that you give to them and pass on to them as well. Because the light has changed you. It takes time. It takes time to begin seeing yourself as God sees you. It takes time for most of us to be able to pass on forgiveness to ourselves that we're so willing to give to others. It takes time to take some of the um, priorities that we thought were guiding us and to realize that they may not all be correct. Uh, it, it takes time to bring all of that, as we say in discipleship, under the lordship of Jesus. It, it, it takes time for some of those wants and needs and desires to be transformed and to be more kingdom-like and, and, and more Christ-like. It, it takes time for the prayer that Jesus taught us to become our prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy, different, other. You are different from us. Holy is your name. And so we pray your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth or right here in my home, right, right here in my work, right here in my dreams, right here in my goals, right here in my relationships right here on earth as it is in heaven. I am the light of the world. So there he is sitting in that hotel room chair reflecting on the highs and lows of his light, life. He, he thought about his quest for autonomy and independence and success and self-sufficiency and how it ended up just enslaving him to the pursuit of wealth. Then he thought about his wife, Trish. She was a follower of Jesus, and he really had made life difficult for her. He knew there were times in the morning he would walk out of the bedroom and she would put the Bible away because she didn't want to, him to see her reading it. He'd just make snide remarks. He'd called her Bible thumper and a Jesus freak. Their marriage was struggling. What would life be like for Trish without Jesus? He knew her joy came from that. Her joy came from her, that faith. Her joy came from somehow that relationship with Jesus. And she realized she didn't earn it. How could she be joyful in something she didn't earn? And that's when he realized that up to that point, he had invested all of his energy into the idea that God didn't exist. Because if God did exist, then where did that leave him? He had put all his stock into himself, what he could achieve, what he could accomplish, his business abilities. He looked at the clock and realized he'd been sitting there now for two hours. Two hours thinking about this. Two hours. Looked over at the, at the wet bar again. Maybe I should have a drink. And he thought, not tonight. 
He didn't want anything else to cloud his memory. May I share with you his words? Suddenly, I felt a warm wave of energy surge through me and my eyes welled up with tears. I couldn't stop it, a feeling of joy but also regret, a feeling of deep and unending love but also a deep sense of the need to repent. It seemed like a light had come on even though the room was still dark. I had all this wrong, I thought. Yes, the world is broken, depraved, in a violent place, but the Bible says that Jesus healed people. He transformed them. He hung out among the worst of them and he forgave them. Then I felt a divine presence in the room. Shivers ran up and down my spine. The Holy Spirit was there. Jesus, I've cried out. I I worship myself, but it's empty. I don't want to live another moment apart from you. I give my life to you. Please forgive my pride. Make me one of yours and adopt me into your family. And he said, I just laid on the floor on my face before God and sobbed all night. Every tear washed away a memory of rebellion, a harsh word. I didn't care whether anyone in the hallway or the next door could hear me. I wanted a relationship with Jesus. And he tells the truth. The following years were tough. He went from crisis after crisis. He endured a painful separation from Isilon systems. There were lawsuits. There were bad investments. And finally, he faced some realities in his life and went into treatment and got sober. And then he felt like he needed to spread the gospel. So 11 years ago, he sat down with his wife, Trish, to talk about their future. And he said, I have this real need to learn more, to go deeper. I think I want to go to seminary. And she gave him a big smile. And this is what she said. Be careful what you pray for. I asked God to save my husband. A garden variety Christian man would have sufficed. But he's giving me a Charles Spurgeon. And today, Stuart is the senior pastor at Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado. I am the light of the world. You tired of walking in darkness? Be careful what you pray for today. It just might happen. Then many who heard him believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, we step out in faith, not knowing where it will lead us, a little concerned about where you may take us, but needing so much to live in the light. Will you hear the prayers and the longings of this wonderful group of people who have gathered here? Will you hear their prayers? In Christ's name, amen. We're going to stand and sing as we always do at the end of our worship services. And we think this is still a part of worship.
a chance for you to respond. If you've never made that step to invite Christ into your life, we give you that opportunity. Or if you're looking for a place, a group of people to join as we're fulfilling God's mission, we invite you to join us on mission this morning.